Dr. Jeannie uh, Ohm, uh, my buddy and friend who passed away a couple of years ago from the ICPA, the president of the ICPA after Webster, um, told me shortly before she passed away that I need to read this book. She said, you really should teach this at life. And you know, when, when Jeannie spoke, you listened, you know. Um, she was an amazing visionary, just like Webster was. Um, so I read this book and I said, my God, you're right. This is a great book. This is by, uh, it's a book called Manual Therapy in Children by Dr. Heiner Biedemann. He's a German osteopath. Remember after I first got, I ordered the book um, and uh, I got it and I was like, Jeannie, this is an osteopathic book. Like I didn't realize it when I was just like, I said, whatever you say, I'm getting it. Uh, so I went onto the you know, publisher's website as faculty. We get nice discounts and stuff. Um, and I got the book and she, she said, this guy's a chiropractor. He's basically an osteopath, he's a chiropractor you know, in, in, in spirit. Um, and uh, he's an amazing uh, a person uh, who I've had a chance to interact with uh, here and there. Um, the reason he is so amazing is because uh, he um, worked uh, with Dr. Gerard Goodman. So I remember when I was here at Life University, uh, you see 1987, I was, I was in the middle of Life University at that time. I graduated here in 89, June 89. And um, uh, I remember Dr. Sid and Dr. Webster, uh, they, they had assemblies every week, by the way. And Dr. Sid spoke every single week uh, at assembly. So you're lucky you get three times a quarter, um, you know, if that. And, and now it was used to be every single week. So Dr. Sid and Dr. Webster came up one day holding this paper saying, look at this. This is proves why chiropractic is so necessary for kids. So Dr. Goodman uh, from Germany also uh, wrote block atlantal nerve syndrome in babies and infants. What, what do you think block atlantal nerve syndrome means in chiropractic terms? Up the cervical subluxation, <laughs> right. but you know, osteopaths won't use our terms, um, so which is okay. That's cool. Uh, so, th so they just call it blocked atlantal nerve syndrome, um, but it's essentially up the cervical subluxation. And um, in it, and talk about like numbers, right? This dude in Germany is seeing a thousand babies, not just kids. This is just babies. A thousand babies he had in his through his practice in like a one I think it was a two year time if I remember reading it. That's pretty impressive. I, I see a ton of babies. I don't see a thousand babies. Uh, so that's amazing. Uh, so they just they they do things differently in Germany. Um, I so I appreciate that. <clears throat> and what he found is that there's a central motor impairment and development in these kids with these blocked atlantal or upper cervical syndrome. Um, impairments of vegetative regulatory systems, which means that they have what does that mean? Vegetative regulatory systems. Right, tummy, tummy stuff, right, breathing stuff. Um, so that's just a fancy way of saying that. Lower resistance to infections, especially ear, nose, and throat, right? Ear infection, big thing. And neurophysiological connections in area of uh, lateral uh, occipital joint assemblies of the brainstem, which means um, like these are the kind of kids who are having all kinds of <clears throat> uh, breathing issues and immune issues and GI issues and all of this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and I've always thought that was kind of amazing. Uh, like, I remember, I distinctly remember Dr. Sid and Dr. Webster talking about this. And then it just so happened that later on, his, one of his coaches, his, his like associate, so to speak, 
became the main guy when Guten retired, and Biederman now took over his practice and now is writing the textbooks and stuff. Now, Dr. Goodman quotes a paper from 1969. So this is one of the original researchers in, uh, in this, who's a medical doctor, and he found latent and from America, latent spinal cord and brainstem injury in newborn infants. So the same, same basic thing, saying like kids who are uh, newborn kids have spinal cord and brainstem injuries during birth, but frequently escape diagnosis. Right. So how many kids have, have I seen and are you going to see who are, had a birth process that was less than optimal? And these kids are, are a mess. Right. And that's what he's talking about. And infants who survived there may be lasting neurological deficits, reflecting the primary injury. But the thing is, and you've heard me say this a million times, the thing is that nobody puts two and two together. Right. They're not thinking about this. So when you have a kid later on with ear infections, when you have a kid later on with um, ADHD or something, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, it's because of that horrible birth the kid had, right? They're not going to think about it going backwards. They're just going to say, oh, he has ear infections. Oh, he has, you know, ADHD. Oh, he's got this, whatever it is, and they don't put this together. I would love to know, just a thought, I'd love to know what, this, what kind of birth this kid from Michigan had. Just a thought. I would love to, now nobody's probably even thinking about that. But this is what I'm thinking, saying, like, I wonder. I wonder what kind of trauma this kid's had, right? Physical, mental, the three T's, right? I wonder where, what, what's happened to this kid to bring him to this point, right? Um, it's just, oh, stop thinking about it. Um, so anyway, this is Dr. Biederman. Uh, uh, he is uh, written, he's written a lot of papers. Um, uh, aside from this uh, book here, he wrote uh, this paper, which if you're interested in getting like the Cliff Notes version of the book, uh, this was like uh, what everything about what he was talking about in the book was so this is like a precursor to it. Um, and I really like this paper. Let's see if I can just pull this thing up for you. That did make it work. <laughs> of course. Let's see if I can pull this up here. Oh, my Lord. Something's happening. There we go. Yeah, here it is. So this is it was in JMPT, which I thought was kind of cool. So he published it in our uh, journal because he knew that we'd like this kind of stuff. Um, and one of my favorite things that he talks about in this this particular um, uh, article, look at the trauma of birth. Here's a, a medical doctor talking about this. Uh, one of my favorite things that he talks about, if I could find it, is this word verticalization. It's one of my favorite words. So Sydney here is a baby. And Sydney maybe is four months old or so at this size, right? What's the number one thing that Sydney has to do? What's her goal in her first year? First year goal for Sydney. Well, considering this word, what's the goal? Verticalize. It's called verticalize. That's the name that he termed verticalization. So what he what he came up with in his all his research and stuff like that. Sorry. Uh, what he came up with is you have to go. The goal of the brain, not the baby, but the goal of the brain is to go from here to here in a year. That's the goal. And if you don't verticalize in a year, 
give or take, right? You're going to have some kids who are born prematurely, right? Some kids who have some kind of issues, etc. But give or take, 12-ish months. You got 12 months to figure this out. Verticalization. If you don't verticalize, or you inappropriately or improperly verticalize, as you skip crawling, like we talked about, you crawl funny, you don't roll well, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You don't make it to pure verticalization, or you don't even make it at all to verticalization. You're still you're still crawling by 12 months. Something is up. Something is up. So verticalization is the key thing. Now, this is interesting. He didn't talk about this, but I, this is my corollary on verticalization. So if the goal of the first year is verticalization, what's the goal of the second year? Well, walking now has been accomplished, hopefully, by verticalization. But what's the next level? So think about the brain. Right, the brain matures from the bottom up. So the, the brain starts from the brain stem. You got the medulla, you got the cerebellum, etc., and you start to get the basal ganglia balance kicking in. So what's the next step? We're going higher up. Speech. So I, but I, I like saying so we got verticalization, communication. Right. That's the goal of the second year. Right. The second. So zero, age zero to age one, verticalization. Age one to age two is communication. What's the goal? And this is just once again my opinion. The goal from age two to age three is socialization. Right? So you go verticalization, communication, socialization. Those are the three steps. But if you if something happens during verticalization, you're not going to be able to communicate as well. And if you don't communicate as well, you won't be able to socialize as well. You get it? Those are the three steps. And that's what I thought was brilliant. So, and I didn't come up with it until I saw the word verticalization and heard him talk about this. And I'm like, oh, because at first I was like, verticalization, eh, okay, it's important to go this way. But I was like, okay, if you don't do one, then the others will get affected as a domino kind of thing, right? So, that to me was one of Biedemann's most brilliant things. So the paper is available to you if you want to click into it at some later time. Please do, because uh, I, I just love his stuff. <clears throat> so once again, can you see that I'm a little brain focused? Can you see this now? Um, hopefully you figure this out by now. So even he's talking, this is, you know, he wrote this book 10 years ago. The brain is critical, right? The brain is small. When the baby first develops, there's not much of a prefrontal cortex going on, right? That's even though that's our hallmark of our species. Um, what's going on is that we, if that doesn't, from the bottom up start to develop, is what happens is we have bottom up development and then top down control. But if we don't have the appropriate bottom-up development, then we can't get the top-down control. And if you read anything from like Darwin or Jackson, who wrote in the 1800s about the human brain, even these early, early writings, Jackson was talking about if the, if the person doesn't have this, this growth from the top up correctly, then what's going to happen is not only will the top-down not work, but the middle areas and the lower areas will take over. And this is what we see in the more, you know, more difficult cases. <clears throat> so, 
So in that first year, what we're seeing is like if they did if they did an EEG on a baby, it would look like they're sufficiently abnormal to indicate imminent demise. Because it looks like uh, the, from the EEG point of view, their brain, their prefrontal cortex isn't working much. So that's what you're really measuring with the EEG. You're really measuring you know, that particular area. <clears throat> so what we want to understand is, is that the, the CNS is really, you know, the whole point of this thing is to really get control, is to gain control. And he talks about this nutritional and acoustic level. Uh, which is important because obviously nutrition is what they're taking in and acoustic is what they're taking this way. I would beg to differ. There's a few things that he and I differ about. I would also add over here, I would add visual. So I think visual is super important in this situation because if you think about it, when a child begins to verticalize, when, when they're, they're getting close to the verticalization stage at about a year old or so, an appropriate thing to do would be if I said, hey, Johnny, Johnny would look at me. So you get acoustic input, right? I'm saying, hey, Johnny. And then Johnny hears me, senses that, and then localizes, right? Johnny has to say, okay, I hear my name, and it's coming from there. I need to go like this and find out who's calling my name, right? That's an appropriate response. So I think nutritional is certainly important because obviously almost everything they do in the beginning is just take in. And it's all about eating and pooping and sleeping too. But uh, but the, so the acoustic level is important, but I think the the ocular level is also important. And I just I think that's a if I was rewriting this textbook, um, I would add that over here. And this is the critical thing. So why did I teach you? Why did I teach you how to do a tonal based cranial adjustment and a um, traditional based occiput adjustment? Is because of this. Because the suboccipital sub area is the seat of what part of the brain? What, what sensory part? Proprioception. This is like major, major proprioceptive input area. So when a baby, come here, Sydney, when a baby is on their belly and they put their hands out like this and they lift their head up like this. Right. This is the beginning of proprioceptive input. Because when you when a child starts to that's the beginning of verticalization, as the child verticalizes, what they're doing is they're going against gravity. Which you really think about is, is like a way cool thing. Because we almost every other animal, you know, like all the, the like this you know animals that live on the ground are not fully vertical. Now, some of them can get vertical to a degree. You can take some, some primates, possibly, and they can stand a little bit of time and maybe walk a little bit of time like some of the primates can. But that doesn't mean that they're that they are functional at that place, right? You, don't, you can't have a chimpanzee or gorilla or orangutan or whatever um, be functional for too long standing on two feet. They've got to go back down like this and use their hands for support, right? So we need to fully verticalize like this, and but that verticalization is coming all from proprioception in the suboccipital area. <clears throat> so if you can imagine what a problem torticollis would cause, right? 
What a problem any sort of subluxation will cause. What a problem even a mild cranial malposition will cause that would allow me, which is why I work on every single baby who comes into my practice. I work on their little <clears throat> craniums, 100% of them, every single one, every single visit, to make sure that that input is as good as it can get. I want the best possible input for their little brain stems, for their little proprioceptive areas, because this is that's the area. If you can't do this, you can't do anything. As an example, I have two kids now who come in recently, which I think I mentioned to you, who have cerebral palsy, who are both around three or four years old, who are not walking. And for years, they've had physical therapy and occupational therapy, but nobody's ever worked on getting their heads up off the ground. If you don't get your head up off the ground, you ain't walking. I don't care what you're doing. I get this one little youngster who's four years old. The mom carries him in, and he's like a limp noodle, essentially. And he's a big kid, you know, four years old. You can't, he, you do this, and, and he just flops down. Because he's got, so, and, so, so, and that's what the physical purpose, God bless them, are trying to work on. To stand up, try to stand up, try to stand up. Use your legs. And he's just like this, you know, like this marionette kind of thing that you're, you're controlling from above. It's not going to work. So I'm like, you've got to get him to go on his belly. You've got to get him to go on his belly because he's got to learn to do this. If You've got to start with the beginning, right? If you can't do the beginning, which is lift your head up, you can't walk. It's not possible. I mean, he can't even walk with a walker. And it's not because he's there's something that he couldn't, he can't do. Right? It's just something he hasn't been trained to do. Right? And they're trying to train the turn. We have this walker thing that they have to like hold his legs and put like braces on this and put braces over here, and then he can kind of stumble like this. But that's he's that's not how you learn how to walk. You learn how to walk by mastering the stuff before walking. Right? So this is and, and, and so this is what we're talking about is this suboccipital area. And that's why to me, when we talk about the suboccipital area, I think Gonstead is one of my favorite adjustments. But the it, look at the the plane lines of the spine here at a six month old. This isn't even like a newborn infant, but look at them, everything's straight across. So when you do if especially if you do a more diversified like crunch, crunch adjustment, I've seen people doing this. And like, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But what that shows me is you don't know this. Because if you saw that, the, the way that, that everything is so stacked like this in straight lines, you'd realize that by going crunch, crunch like this on a newborn or a couple month old kid, you're really not getting the neurology working the way you think you are. You're making a whole bunch of noise, which is okay. But are you really making are you really making the effect that you want? Wouldn't it be better putting your finger on that atlas like this, right? Or using an activator or a TRT tool? Wouldn't it be better to do something a bit more gentle and a bit more focused on the plane line, right? Because every adjustment I deliver, I want to deliver through the an appropriate plane line. So when I see, once again, it's not bad or wrong, but when I see a rotational adjustment, I know they don't know the anatomy. You're not thinking about the anatomy or what's really going on inside that kid's head. 
you're doing an adult adjustment on a child and an adult spine is not the same as a child's spine. That's why people, I've had people argue with me, Dr. Rubin, you talk about pediatric chiropractic as if it's some like new thing that Webster invented, but they've been adjusting kids ever since D.D. Palmer. It's true, true. So there's nothing. So there's nothing new. It's just it, it's just dumbing it down. You're just taking a big adult adjustment, making a little adjustment. No, it is not the same thing. It is completely dissimilar because you got to take it out. It's just it's just like saying to a dentist, you don't need a pediatric dentist because the teeth they're just little versions of the adult things. No, the whole mouth is different, especially a little munchkin. When a little kid who's two years old, three years old, four years old, before they get adult teeth, their whole mouth shape, the jaw, everything is different. Now, yes, it's basically the same, right? And it's just 20 instead of 26 or something, but that, that doesn't mean it's the same. And that's what I want you guys to get at, is when you guys are adjusting kids, I want you to really think about their, their disc plane lines. You know, I have an atlas of normal radiographic anatomy that I've studied, and it shows normal spinal anatomy at every major age. So you need to think about that before you do it, right? So you're just going crunch, crunch like this. You're not, you're not taking into account all the extra pieces that I think need to be taken into account. And Dr. Biederman talks about the, the, the birth trauma. So I want you to think about this. If, if, you would, if you would see a birth and you see a birth like this with someone twisting a kid out like this and you go, oh my God, how horrible that is. What do you think this is when you adjust them? It's, this is it's a, a potential trauma on the child. Now, I don't know that for sure. It's just a thought process. I just want you to think about it, right? So think about this. So birth trauma. So Dr. Biederman is very keen on talking about birth trauma, just as his predecessor, Doug Goodman, was. Risk factors for development of craniocervical blockage. Two-thirds of all symptomatic infants had some sort of birth trauma. Two-thirds. So of the thousand kids, right, that they talked about, that means, I don't know what two-thirds is, it's 700 uh, ish, something like that, almost 700 uh, uh, kids had birth trauma. That's crazy. Uh, one of the worst things is something they call, now this is a German term, Christel's maneuver. This is pressure from above. One of my patients was just telling me uh, she had a baby uh, a couple months ago. <clears throat> and uh, she said the doctor popped of her fundus like this during her labor because the baby was kind of stalled there. Yeah. That's wild. Um, you know what happened to me earlier today? I was talking in this room, and this this thing I didn't touch it goes up by itself. I'm like, this room is haunted. Um, so anyway, so uh, he was pushing. She said I was watching him push on my. Like, he was like standing like this, pushing down on the baby. So that's obviously that pressure from above during labor, especially if the kid's head down, is going to create quite a uh, friction on the kid's neck. Um, high birth weight, so kids 4,000 grams, 10 pounds. Kids who are 10 pounds or above, obviously hard. Short expulsion periods. Now, obviously, having a, a shorter birth is good in some ways because, you know, for those of you who have gone through birth, you know it's not an easy thing and having less of it is better. But to some degree, it is, but to some degree, it's not because sometimes the shorter uh, births can be quite tra traumatic for the kids because they kind of get piled out like this and some of these kids end up with like broken clavicles and all those sorts of issues because of this 
um, uh, intrauterine forced or abnormal positions. So if you have a, a child who's um, uh, had to be in a, in a, or the mom is in a very tough position because of uh, what's going on in birth, um, an occipital posterior position. Occipital posterior means this, which is sunny side up. They call it sunny side up. So a baby who's face out like this, sunny side up or occipital posterior uh, position, very, very hard labor on the baby and, and the mom. A prolonged delivery. Uh, now, this doesn't mean labor, right? This doesn't mean labor. This means end stage, right? Stage three, right? Because you have the first stage where you're kind of in this little thing. The second stage is you're really getting close. And then delivery should be an hour, maybe two hours at the, at the most. If you have this prolonged delivery, like way over 24 hours, that's a tough that's a tough thing uh, to be like completely engaged and ready to come out and not be able to get out. That's very hard on the mom and the baby. Um, prolapse or, extre of ex or presentation of extremity or shoulder dystocia, very, very challenging to have that sort of issue. Um, uh, certainly if a shoulder comes out first or an arm comes out first or a leg, uh, that is a really challenging um, uh, labor. Uh, postpartum trauma, such as intubation. So obviously intubation is a necessary evil because something happened to the kid and they're not breathing. But if you can imagine the sticking their kid's head back like this, because they shove a tube in there and their head is really going to mess with their occiput. Um, premature births, uh, most kids who are premature are, are on the weaker side. Uh, so you have to understand that. Uh, Post-term deliveries, so that was very, very late uh, stages at 42 weeks, et cetera. And twin pregnancies, as you can imagine, almost every kid I've ever seen who are, who are twins, that had a, a very tough time coming into the world. Um, some kids who uh, you know are born when with multiples, some kids end up, uh, one of them is usually what they call, is, I don't like using these terms, but there's like an A and a B uh, kind of thing. And usually the A is a bit stronger, weighs more, et cetera, and the B is a bit weaker. Very often the, the B classified uh, children end up uh, with oxygen necessity and sleep apnea issues and alarms on their beds and, and are wearing uh, EKGs or respiratory monitors, et cetera, um, to see what's going on with them. So twin pregnancies can be challenging, especially for the, what they were, once again, I like the term, but what they call the B baby, the, the, the smaller child. <clears throat> I'm gonna skip a bit here. Okay. So this is what Dr. Biederman is known for. Um, you may have heard or seen this before in other uh, places, <clears throat> but um, he's known for this thing called KISS or kinematic imbalance due to suboccipital strain. So once again, it's the osteopathic uh, word maneuvering of uh, a, a cervical subluxation. Upper <laughs> um, cervical subluxation, just another way of saying it. Um, and, but I like this because it really does describe what's going on. Because uh, kinematic meaning movement imbalances, um, kinematic also having the implication of sensory also imbalances due to suboccipital strain. Um, so you get he has these two different um, pictures of KISS 1 and what he calls KISS 2. KISS 1 is far more common. The KISS 1 is a torticollis. The KISS 1 is a torticollis. You'll see this quite a bit. Uh, babies aren't usually born with torticollis. It's not usually when you see it. The torticollis usually comes out after a couple of weeks. Um, so when they're first born, babies are kind of floppy anyway. So rarely will you see a kid who's like instantly has a torticollis. Um, it's usually something that comes that there might be a tendency towards it in the beginning, and then you'll start seeing that they kind of, they nurse better on one side, they turn more to one side, they favor one side, they sleep with their head 
turn to one side, etc. Um, there are two kinds of this, even though uh, it's not listed here, but uh, I'm going to tell you that there are two kinds of torticollis. Uh, you have a lateral flexion torticollis, where the kid's more stuck in a lateral position like this, and you have rotational torticollis like this. And then I guess there's probably a, a, a mid one, like a 1.5, where there's sort of a combination of a rotation and a lateral flexion in the kind of torticollis also. Um, what this is going to do is this is going to kind of flatten one of the sides of the baby's head. They call it microsomia, or, or kind of flattening of the baby's head, and causing asymmetry of the skull. Uh, something he calls C-scoliosis, neck and trunk. In other words, the, it sort of has the shape of a C here, going like this. Um, the asymmetry of the glute area, you can see the glute folds are, are asymmetric here to here. Um, in this asymmetry, asymmetrical motion of the limbs, as you can imagine, if you get a kid like this, right, and you do a moral response with them, what's going to happen? Right, here's a normal moral, right? Here's a moral like this. You have a muted side, right? The side of the flexion is going to be muted compared to this, where it's going to go like that on both sides. Same thing with um, galat reflex, you know? With the galat reflex, you stroke down like this, what do you want to see? You want to see lateral flexion. So, but if you're already flexed this way, you'll see a little bit of lateral flexion. What about the other direction? Where it doesn't go that way, right? So you go have, so what's that going to do? So torticollis is going to affect ultimately the brain, which is going to affect rolling, it's going to affect crawling, it's going to affect everything, right? So kids who have torticollis generally have delayed motor development, retardation of motor development on one side especially. So they're going to have delayed development. They're going to have problems rolling, problems crawling. And so when the parent comes in and they say to you, Oh, you gotta fix my little kid's head because I want his head to be like this, nice for pictures, which is good. But what you gotta tell them is this isn't really about the photographic uh, evidence of your child. This is really about his mobilization, his verticalization, that's gonna have some potential effects later on, right? So that's what we need to we need to to talk to them about what they are really concerned about, not just about what they look like, right? Because yes, I usually it doesn't look as pretty in a picture. My Christmas pictures, I don't want it to look like this. You know, we have to hold the kids head up like this. Yeah, I get that. But what we're really dealing with is is the mobility later on, right? That's the real thing that we are concerned about. So that's kiss one. Kiss two is they call it this is a German term, retroflexion, which essentially means extension. Right. Retro meaning back, you know, flexion. It's just the, the way the Europeans, uh, they have a different way of talking about it. Um, so uh, a lot of kids when they're sleeping who have this KISS-2 will be uh, stuck in hyperextension like this when they're sleeping. Um, they will have asymmetrical occipital flattening, which makes sense because they're pushing the occiput, you know, like this. Um, the shoulders are pulled up, as you can see here, with fixed supination of the arms as they're sleeping. Um, these kids, they, when they're face down like this, they can't lift their heads up easily. Now I find it with regular torticollis too, but especially with if you if you're already stuck in extension, it's very hard for you to continue to lift a further extension. Their oral facial muscular hypotonia, and you and I will tell you this is another place where Dr. Beatum and I disagree a little bit. Uh, sorry buddy. Uh, but uh, I think breastfeeding I find that both of them have breastfeeding issues um, on one side or another. Um, so just a funny story because uh, I love telling you true crazy things that I do. Um, so uh, we were in Dallas a couple years ago. Uh, I was speaking at Parker for ICPA, and we were running 
uh, it was uh, we kind of late trying to get to our plane to come back home you know, here. Um, and <laughs> my wife and I are pulling our you know, suitcases and stuff. And I'm always looking, I, I have this very bad habit of looking for babies. Um, I just can't help it. I'm constantly on the lookout for babies. Um, as we're running anywhere we are at, I'm always looking for a baby. And if I do, I usually stop because I just can't help myself. Um, <laughs> it's just a thing. Um, this is totally used to it now. One of our first dates, we're sitting, um, this is 1988. We're sitting in some restaurant downtown Atlanta and um, in, in, we're in a booth and then behind her, this little kid just peeps his head up like this. So I start like, you know, playing with him like this and, you know, making faces and stuff like that. And Lisa was like, oh my God. She said to herself, I'm in trouble already with this guy. Um, so anyway, so we're running through Dallas airport and all of a sudden Lisa is, is always much faster than me. So she's ahead of me and also I go like this and I stop because I'm looking, this woman is sitting at some you know store there in the concourse and her baby is lying down in her stroller like this, completely in extension like this. She was just, the baby was just like this and it wasn't doing looking. It was just, this is the way it was. And Lisa is now like three or four steps ahead of me. And she turns around and she goes, what are you doing? Like, and so she comes over here to me and I said, Lisa, don't make it obvious, but look at the baby in the store over here. <laughs> so she does and she's like, oh my gosh. I said, can I take a picture? She said, no, you cannot take a picture. I said, but this is exactly what we're talking about in class. This is, this is exactly it. She said, Drew, you cannot take a picture. So then she grabbed me and pulled me away. Um, so you're going to have to trust me that this really did. You can ask Lisa. Uh, you have to trust me that this really did happen, but it really did. Um, so, um, but it was, I, I'd never seen that before, like where the kid was like that. And I mean, I, I obviously I would have asked him permission somehow, <laughs> what I would have said, <laughs> but um, it was really interesting. But I, I, I've only seen that that badly that one time. Other times I have seen kids in like a, what they call a stargazer appearance, as you've probably heard before. Um, but I've never seen it quite that significant in a kid. 